Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you. How are you? I missed you last week. It's good to be back home. We visited my family in uh, California, stuffed our faces, did nothing, sat on the couch, and ate a whole bunch of Mexican food, and I feel the effects of it this week, but I'm back, <laughs> ready to go, and uh, it, it was, it's really good to visit my family, but uh, it, you know, there's a time to go, and then there's a time to come back, and so I'm glad I'm back. Um, and yeah, you know what I'm talking about, sister. All right. Praise God. If you have a Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 5, and we are working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We're ending up chapter 5 in the next couple weeks, and then the Sunday before Christmas, we will be uh, looking at the incarnation of Jesus as we celebrate this Advent season when Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. As you're finding Matthew chapter 5, as always, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to use one of the Bibles in the chair rack in front of you. You can keep that Bible if you don't own a Bible as our gift to you. Uh, we'll have the scriptures up on the screen, but as always, I think you'd be really helped to open your Bible for yourself and uh, to look at the words on the page and just become more familiar with it. So we're going to look at verses 38 through 42 this morning, and one of my favorite British uh, pastors, not the one you're thinking of, the one with the beard who smoked cigars back in the 1800s, but a more recent one, John Stott, who passed away just a few years ago, said that this is the most difficult portion of the whole Sermon on the Mount. The requirements that Jesus lays on his people, the call that he puts on us is, is an incredible challenge about turning the other cheek. And then next week, we're going to look at how we should love our enemies. So with that, with that, those sobering, really, words from, from uh, our brother, our British brother, John Stott, let's read Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 and 32. We're not going to have any notes on the screen this morning other than Scripture. I just want us to rally around one idea about what Jesus is saying and then look at a few implications for us. So, Let me read God's word, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand these words and apply them. Father, I thank you for your kindness to us in Christ that you and your kind providence would give us your word, that you would superintend it through the centuries, that you would breathe it out, that it's inspired directly from you, written through the agency of human authors, preserved perfectly for us. And because it's inspired by you who are holy and good and eternal, it is completely true. It's inerrant. It is without error. We can completely trust your word, even when it seems to confront us with, with the challenge that seems impossible to obey. And it's not only inspired by you, it's not only Without error, because it's from you, it has complete authority over our lives. 
So we bow our hearts and our minds and our lives to this word that you have given us this morning. And we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit so that we can see it rightly, that we can obey it. I pray for Christians in this room that our hearts would be simultaneously convicted and encouraged. And I pray for my friends in this room that are not yet trusting in Christ, that you would do the greatest miracle of all, that you would take dead, unbelieving hearts that can do nothing, as we have sung already, that can do nothing in and of themselves, that you would make them alive and that you would make the first breath of their new life to be faith in the risen King Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd do these things for the good of your people, for the glory of your name, for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, before we can understand this text, I think we need to understand a little background on what Jesus is quoting here. Remember, as we've been working through Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is, is intending to correct the misinterpretation of the Pharisees and scribes or the religious teachers of his day. They were misapplying much of the Old Testament. And at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, several weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus said that I have not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. So the whole Old Testament, Jesus is saying, specifically the law, is meant to point God's people to Him, who He is, that He alone has fulfilled the law for us. And He hasn't come to just sort of do away with God's holiness, but to personify it and to give us a way through trusting in Him to actually be able to follow it. And the teachers of the God's people at this time were twisting the Old Testament. And so there's And the rest of Matthew chapter 5, a series of corrections that Jesus makes. And he will say things like, you have heard. Notice that he doesn't say, you have read it or that it is written. He's saying, you have heard this false interpretation. And one of the things that he is correcting is how the Pharisees and scribes or the religious leaders of the day were misinterpreting an Old Testament regulation about setting limits on retribution. And so in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Exodus, we won't take time to read it, but God, through Moses, establishes regulations or laws on how people were to handle offenses or wrongs done to them as a way of setting a limit on retribution. And so that's the background of the Old Testament law. These laws were given, in fact, it says in Exodus 21 and Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy 19 that uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth or a life for a life. What's going on there, again, is, is, is important for us to notice that it's, it's meant to be a limiting factor on retribution. And not only is it meant to limit retribution so that people don't get carried away and say, oh, well, you, you took my eye, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, do more to you. It was also the responsibility of not the individual to determine what the justice or the repayment would be, but it was the responsibility of the judges of Israel to determine what the fair retribution would be when there was uh, pain or, or offense caused by somebody else. But the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious teachers of Jesus' day, were twisting this. They were using it, much like I think it's used in our culture today. They were twisting it and saying it's it's almost like a license 
to punish, to, to get vengeance. And they were using it as kind of like an eye for an eye. Well, then that means I can pick up my sword and do something to somebody when they hurt me. Their question ultimately was not what limit does God's justice and law set on, on you know, handling offense, but their question ultimately was how far can I go in retaliation before I break the law? Now, isn't that, I'm going to go on a rabbit trail here, but isn't that kind of, that, that sort of rationalization uh, exists in all of our hearts? How far can I go before I disobey God? Thank you, one brother, for... <laughs> How far can we go before it's too far? Young guy sitting next to a pretty girl... How far can we go before it's, you know, there's something about that mentality that shines the light on our heart. It's not bent towards being in God's center and holiness. It's, it's meant to get as close to the edge without falling. If you're there, young person or old person, I mean, it's not just young people that struggle with, with getting close to the edge. I, I'm, I'm sorry to give you that impression. It's, it's old folks too. If there's something in us that says, how far can I go before I transgress God's ways? There's something wrong with us. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing here. So they were making it justification for retaliation, not as a limit on retaliation. And then they were wrongly applying it because they were making it not the decision of a council of judges or legal officials that would help people work through their disputes, but they were making it something solely that the individual decides. And Jesus is saying, no, this is not something that the individual decides. So what is and what does Jesus say? So let's look at verse 38 and 39 again. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, verse 39, listen to these words. Do not resist the one who is evil. And then in the second part of verse 39, and then in the next three verses, he gives basically four case studies or four examples. He says there at the end of verse 39, if anyone slaps you on the cheek, and the implication there is, is it's a backhanded slap. Now, it's something to get punched or slapped in the face, but when you get slapped with, with the backhand, isn't that just kind of like you just got owned? You know what I mean? It's... You just, it's just more offensive. Just a, you know, mm, just a backhand. And that's the, 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 the point that's being communicated there is there's this offense of being slapped in the face. And Jesus says you're to turn the other cheek. The second example he gives there in verse 40 is that if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak. So for us, the, it would be kind of like if somebody takes your, your, you know, your coat Take your shirt off and give it to him as well. Go, go even further. The third example he gives, if, if anyone forces you to go one mile, don't just meet that one mile, that, that little lowest ex, expectation. Go with him too. And then he gives a fourth example. He's, he's piling on. He says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. All of this meant to be sort of like spokes off of the great hub of this truth that Jesus is saying here. Do not resist the one who is evil. So what does Jesus mean by this? 
Well, before we can look at that, I think it, we might be helped if we consider what Jesus is not saying by this. I don't think that he's saying that we should submit ourselves to bodily harm unnecessary. In fact, there's other portions in the scriptures where it's, it's clearly legitimate for us to flee harm, physical harm. He's not saying that you should just let yourself be pummeled to death. Secondly, he's not prohibiting the role of government to bring justice against the evildoer. In fact, I think we, we might be helped to read uh, Romans chapter 13. I know we have a lot of civil servants, a lot of policemen and firefighters and certainly a lot of military in this church. And Jesus is not saying to you in your role as an agent or a servant of the state that you should not rightly and justly bring justice against evil people. Listen, listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 13. And don't pit Paul against Jesus. The, whole, the Trinity wrote the whole Bible. Sometimes people say, well, I'm a red letter Christian. I want to give them, I want to slap them with the back of my hand when they say that. (laughs) They misunderstand that the whole Bible is written by the one triune God, right? Okay, just a little side there. So Romans chapter 13, listen to what Paul says. Let every person, and the context of what Paul is writing about the Roman government is way more intense than how frustrated we get with our American government. Amen. All right, Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. That's a sweeping statement. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Wow. Nobody gets elected president of the United States unless it is ordained by God. Oh, thank you. I have some agreement here. Let's take it a step further. No, no, nobody sits on any throne or position of power outside of the providential, sovereign hand of God. Even the most wicked. And we're going to talk about what happens to them eventually. Verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers, even bad ones. He's talking about the, the Roman emperor. The rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. So the point I want us to read the scriptures, I want you to know that if you're a young man or a young woman in our military, or you're a policeman in this room, and you have to take vengeance, and maybe even take the life of, of an evil person that is harming the greater society than you. Right now, you are, you are that verse right there. You are bearing the sword of an imperfect government underneath the truth of this scripture justly. For you are, he is God's servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so let's just stop. And this is, this, this is, this is never executed perfectly. So thank God for, for soldiers in this room who have been in combat and who will be in combat again who have to make very difficult decisions to bring justice on evil people. Thank God for, for I'm just in my mind, I'm thinking of a few men in this room who I know are policemen who have to 
to just patrol the streets of Columbus and make very difficult assessments in, the, in a moment's time to execute justice. To, they are what this verse is talking about. I think we all saw on the news just this horrible, this horrible tragedy in San Bernardino, California. And we saw the picture of the van of these two terrorists riddled with, with, with gunfire and killed. And that was a righteous and just thing for the San Bernardino Police Department or whoever it was to unload pounds of steel on wicked people. Amen? But that is not what Jesus is saying here. He's not prohibiting the role of government in bringing justice. He's talking about individual relationships. We're actually going to talk more next week about even taking it a step further about what it means to love our enemies. How should Christians think about terrorists and ISIS? Thirdly, I don't think Jesus is saying that we should waste our resources unwisely by being taken advantage of when we give to somebody who begs. I don't think he's saying that you should uh, be unwise in stewarding your resources. Again, he's not laying down absolutes He's establishing principles that he's orienting us toward. And then finally, um, again, well, I have it written down there. He's not establishing these absolutes, but he's giving us principles. So that's, I think, helpful for us to understand what Jesus does not mean before we can understand what he is saying. He's orienting our heart. What What he is saying is he's orienting our heart to reflect this new kingdom ethic of who God's people are. And that's his whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. So he, when he says, when you're slapped by the back of somebody's hand in your face and it just makes you burn and you want retaliation. Again, this isn't a literal absolute, but he's saying in that moment, what is at stake there is not your reputation or your temporary right to justice, but a greater display of the grace of God. When he tells us that we should give away our tunic and cloak, again, he's not saying that we should unwisely give to somebody who's going to squander our grace. He's saying that we should not cling so tightly to our stuff that they control us and we are dominated more about, by preserving our possessions than we are being a display of Christ to a needy world. When he says that we should go not just one mile, but two miles, he's saying that we should be the type of people who are willing to be inconvenienced by people who are hard to be around. Do you know anybody that is hard to be around? You're sitting next to a few of them, I'll tell you that much right now. <laughs> yeah, in fact, you, you this is, I'm just, just going to break it to you if you never heard this. At times, you may be hard to be around. I know, easy sister on the amens, the older I get, the more I realize how hard I can be to be around. Now, I knew it was coming from you, Trevor. I knew he was going to say glory. Inconvenience. In fact, I think, I, think, I think in that thought there, it is a wonderful truth about what it means to be a local church, a local group of people together. I think that a church is marked by its corporate sentiment to say we are going to yoke ourselves to people not like us who stretch us and make us go two miles. 
What, what should bind us together? Back in the 70s and 80s and 90s, there was this huge movement within church leaders to, to kind of look at, well, we, we should shoot for a particular demographic. And if you are a, you know, kind of a middle class guy in the suburbs, you should plant a church and you should try and go after people kind of like you, sort of this, this principle of attraction where all these people that sort of get together because, and we, we understand sort of the, the logic of this, that I'm most likely to sort of be able to attract people that are like me. And I think that the, the heart behind that was probably well-meaning and good. But friends, don't you see how that cuts against the very fabric of what it means to be God's people? We are to inconvenience ourselves and be around people that are not from our same neighborhood, not from our same racial group, not from the, our preferences. And we should be marked by a strange sort of mo, just a, a motley crew, a mosaic of people who just would for no other reason be in the same room together, doing life together, were it not for the surpassing treasure of Christ. That becomes a compelling witness to an onlooking world when not just a bunch of middle class white people or a bunch of African American people or a bunch of Latino people or a bunch of people in this particular demographic gather to re- together around the gospel. It's as if then that Christ is just sort of an add on to their culture. But when people gather together and inconvenience themselves with people that they would never in any other situation in natural circumstances be together with, friends, something beautiful arises from that. It is, it is an aroma that is far better than anything this world has to offer, and that is the call on God's people to inconvenience ourselves with people that we would never otherwise hang around with. And then he says, when people beg, we should give them, let's be generous to them again. It's not to unwisely squander our resources. But he's saying, does your, does your money, does your stuff, is, d- does it have a grip on you to where it is your functional God? Lowercase g. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, remember what life is all about. Remember what Jesus is pointing us to. Remember that life is not just these 80 or 90 years. Life is not just being temporarily vindicated or proven right. Let's go back to the the Beatitudes at the beginning of this chapter. So he's telling us, he's saying, He's saying, don't worry about your reputation when you get slapped in the face. Don't worry about your stuff if you have to give it away. Don't worry about your time and being inconvenienced. Don't worry about your money because it will will fade away. And and he can say all of that because at the beginning of this chapter, in Matthew chapter 5, listen to what he says the reward is for his people. Look at Matthew chapter 5 verse 3. Listen to these beatitudes. Let's focus on the second half of all of these sentences. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If I have the kingdom of heaven, what do I care about temporary justice? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So if I'm inheriting the earth, it's so much easier to let go of a tunic or a cloak when I know that the whole world will be mine because if I have Christ, I have everything. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I, I read that this week again, and I thought of that, you know, that, that goofy British dude, Mick Jagger. What's his, is that, remember that song, I can't get no satisfaction, but I try, and I, and I try. Isn't that this world? I can't get no da na na. That is the anthem of this world. And Jesus is not just establishing little horizontal principles to, to govern our actions. He's saying that tunics and reputation and your time and your money will never satisfy you. So, so. Let go of your death grip on these things and be willing to inherit something far bigger and more satisfying and eternal. Amen? That's what Jesus is saying, that there is something bigger, bigger to live for than temporary horizontal vindication or being proven right. Listen to what the Apostle John says in 1 John Two verses 15 to 17. This is one of my favorite verses. In fact, when I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't know why I'm, I don't know why I'm crying right now, but I mean, just because it, it's just been so impactful on me. When I, when I first started hanging around Reynolds Counts about 10 years ago, he used to quote this verse all the time. I think it's one of his favorite verses. I, I'm just putting words in your mouth, but for some reason, it's just every time I read this verse, I think of him and I'm encouraged. 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, their cloaks, their time, and their possessions, and their money, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we can give these things away, right? For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. My tunics, my time, my possessions, they're passing away along with his desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's what Jesus is saying. That when we see that and we treasure the surpassing worth of Christ, we are free to give our lives away no matter how difficult what we're facing is no matter if we're staring in the face of an evil person. This is what J.I. Packer, I know all my heroes are British. I need some Italian heroes. I mean, I'm Italian. I got an. This is what Packer says. He's actually still alive. He's in his 90s. In his book, I don't know if it's a knowing God, but I read it somewhere and it's just emblazoned in my mind. I don't have it on the screen. He says that God still seeks the fellowship of his people and sends them both joy and sorrow to detach their hands from the things of this world and attach those hands to himself. And I think that's the heart of what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying, let let go, let go of this so that you can hold on to something that will truly satisfy, that is the anecdote to Mick Jagger's sad anthem. You can get satisfaction, but it doesn't rest in these 80 or 90 years or your temporary vindication in the face of evil people. 
So I think embedded in Jesus' words, and we'll end with this before we gather around the Lord's table and receive communion on this first Sunday. I think embedded in Jesus' words are two questions. Do we trust God to do good? Do we trust God to do good? Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. Verse 14, he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Listen to verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. All these things that we think should be handled in the moment, God has said in his eternal word, there's coming a day when I will set everything right. And the question for us as we are confronted with Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount about not resisting people that absolutely get under our skin is do we, even evil people, I'm not just talking something far worse, the wickedness of our world, do we trust that God will ultimately do what is right? The second question I think embedded in this is, is God enough for us? Are we satisfied with God Or are we longing for the things of this world? Can we sing Psalm 73? Let me read Psalm 73 for you. It is an incredible psalm. Listen to this. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I'm going to think about somebody that you know, this evil person that you know just needs justice. You were envious of them. Verse 4, for they had no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. This is just a lament. I mean, he just woes me. Verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. God, are you there? Is what he's saying. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And in verse 16, it takes a dramatic turn. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until... I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. Truly, 
You set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. In other words, he's realizing now that God, yes, your word is true. Vengeance is yours and you will finally someday repay. And then he concludes, verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Is God enough for us. Did you see the headline in the New York Daily News <clears throat> day or two after the San Bernardino uh, terrorist attack killing? Shortly hours after it happened, uh, some presidential candidates tweeted out or through their press people said, hey, we're rightly praying for these people and their victims, obviously the natural, just human response. We're praying for the victims of San Bernardino. And this obviously pagan, unbelieving newspaper, the New York Daily News, ran as their headline in disgust that people would say, we're praying for these people. God isn't fixing this. Now let's unpack that sentiment. I think it comes from a a cynicism about whether or not God is really involved in this world. About whether or not God will really bring justice. Whether or not God really even exists. And friends, when we are tempted to slap back. And when we are tempted to hold on to our tunic and our cloak. And not go the extra mile. And not give our stuff away we are ultimately expressing the same sentiment. God's not going to fix this, so I need to. That's what we're saying. Let's just unpack that idea. Do, Do we really want God to respond immediately to every injustice? Do we? Because, because, because the injustices that we would have committed would need to be folded into that, right? Friends, there's coming a day when he will set everything right. When every wicked tyrant, when every murderous terrorist, when every molesting pedophile when every selfish rapist, when every wicked thing will be finally and fully dealt with, and when every remaining vestige of the residue of sin in my life as well will completely be burned up, There is coming a day when that will happen. Be sure of it, friend. 
And every day that that day does not come is just another day of mercy for God to work salvation before that day when there will be no more time. So friends, let's be people that do not resist. That give our lives away. Let's be people that don't inherit tunics and cloaks. But we inherit the whole earth. Paul puts it this way. Romans 8. Say it with me. The greatest chapter in the Bible. (laughs) Stephen Swinehart is going to send me an email later on this afternoon. In fact, he's probably doing it right now. He jokes every time I say it. Stephen... Send it right now. Go ahead, brother, if you're here. (laughs) I love getting emails while I'm preaching and saying, uh, anyway, this is the digital age that we live in. Romans 8, 31, 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? Listen to verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously with him give us all things? And friends, all things goes way beyond these 80 or 90 years. All things goes way beyond tunics and cloaks and extra miles. All things. All things. So I'm free to give these things away. Because I, if I'm in Christ, will have all things. And we're going to come around this table right now in just a moment after we pray. And we're going to remember the moment where Jesus bore the punishment of God for us and gave us all things for those who trust in Him. Is that you, friend? Is that you? Listen, the, the, there are only, the dividing line is between trusting in Christ or not. You, this None of this applies to you unless you are trusting in Christ and what God has done in His Son to give you all things. And it will, He will satisfy. Let's pray. Father, I confess that um, I think I probably speak for my my brothers and sisters and friends in this room, that we so often have a death grip on this world because we think these little trinkets, these tunics, these cloaks, these reputations, this time that seems so precious to us, this money that we strive for, we think so wrongly that it will satisfy. Lord, would you... Would you wipe the mud from our windshield? Would you blow the clouds away from the fog from our vision so that we can see rightly and afresh again this morning? That you, as the psalmist says, you are our strength and our portion forever. Nothing on earth do we desire, but you alone do we desire. And would you let us see that 
And as we lift up our eyes, would we simultaneously let go of the things that we so closely cling to? And would you satisfy us afresh with the beauty of your crucified, risen, and victorious Son? And as we come around this communion table and as we take this bread, which represents Jesus' body that was broken for us, as we take this cup that represents His blood that was spilled to make us as white as snow, Lord, would we examine our lives in light of this surpassing satisfaction that is in Christ. And as we stare at the crucified and risen King, His truth and His gospel, would we lay down all of these other trinkets and we would be satisfied in You and thus freed to give our lives away. For his glory and our joy. Lord, would you do it in Jesus' name? Amen.